Welcome to the Lisa Wexler Show podcast. Think of it like a magazine or a box of chocolates. You never know what you'll get. From politics to pop culture, healthcare to legal issues, it's all here. And my behind-the-wheel chats are personal observations created especially for you on podcast only. Enjoy. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It's time. Time for stimulating talk. Time for thought-provoking conversation. Time for the Lisa Wexler Show on WICC 600 AM and 107.3 FM. Turn on your brain and get the real scoop on today's topics and events. Here is Lisa Wexler. And welcome to the show today. Good morning, good morning, good morning. We are going to have Bill Gerber on today, and he's going to talk with us about what many in Fairfield are very disappointed about, which is the signing council's decision that UI could go ahead with its monopole plan. They moved it. Uh, slightly, I'm thinking from the south to the north or the north to the south. We'll figure out what that is about. But it's really fascinating to me. We'll get into this with Bill Gerber later. He's the first selectman of Fairfield. What's fascinating to me about it is that they just moved it without having UI submit any engineering plans of where it would go, which seems to me to beg the question, a lot of questions, Right. Is it feasible to move it where they wanted to move it? Is it expensive more or less to move it where they wanted to move it? Have they considered other options? Is there a reason why UI didn't put it in this place to begin with? I mean, it, it's sort of extraordinary that the siding council, which is after all a siding council, it isn't necessarily a qualified engineering firm, would tell United Illuminating instead of yes or no, like we like it here or we don't, they're saying, well, we understand that you want to put these here, and we think there's an important reason for that. So move it someplace else, and here's where you should move it. But these are, this, is, this is a difficult thing. This isn't like moving a boulder on top of a land. This is a pretty significant project. That's the whole point. I just think it's extraordinary that they did this. And I just wonder if their own decision is enforceable on its own merit. 
In any event, we're going to find out from Bill Gerber what the town wants to do about it, plans to do about it. And I know that there are some grassroots organizations as well that are very involved. Our telephone number, 203-333-9422, is a number where you can call in throughout the show or when Bill Gerber is on with us at 1030 uh, for comments or questions on this topic in particular. You can call me at 203-333-9422 on just about anything. I got up this morning... Not only hungry and grateful to have a half a tuna fish sandwich left in the refrigerator, which I just inhaled for breakfast, but also thinking that I really wanted it to be Friday, but it's Thursday. (laughs) I wanted it to be Friday because I haven't seen Abela since Monday and I'm itching already. I have like itchy. I want to see the baby. It feels like a long time already. And we're doing a little bit of FaceTime, but let's face it, she's only two weeks old. So what is that about? Although I do think she's concentrating on me. I call, I say to her, I'm your third person. There's your mother and father, and then there's me. I'm your third person. And she does look rather intently. But still, who am I kidding? I need to be holding her and singing to her. And I miss her. And that's what's happening in my world. So I'm wishing it was Friday. Because tomorrow will be Friday, and then it'll be closer to Saturday, and then I'll be able to see her. 203-333-9422 is our number. Big Connecticut news as the trial continues from um, Michelle Traconis, which we've been following pretty closely. The prosecution rested yesterday, and their last witness was Gloria Farber. Gloria Farber has been unseen in person until yesterday. The five children, who are now four to five years older, have been unseen in person until yesterday. Gloria Farber is well into her 80s. She may be nearing 90. She is Jennifer Dulos's mom. Jennifer Dulos's dad had passed away before Jennifer was killed. And so the mom is um, the mom has been the guardian of the five children ever since the day in which Jennifer disappeared. And she made a brief appearance in court yesterday, all of 10 minutes of testimony. Uh, the there was some cross-examination. I don't know what the defense hoped to get out of it, but in any event, she held her ground for about 10 minutes. She testified and then she left, but she had her five grandchildren trailing behind her to witness her testimony, which must have been a rather dramatic moment in court. 203-333-9422. And we're going to play that testimony now. This is the first time we've ever heard the voice of Gloria Farber. We've got bits of the testimony. We're going to play for you. This first is the prosecution. Uh, Gloria, how are you related to Jennifer Farber? Do she was my daughter. Okay. How old are you, Gloria, if you don't mind my asking? 88. Okay. And uh, where do you live? I live in New York City. When was uh, your daughter's Jennifer Farber? Yes. Okay, when was Jennifer born? She was born September 27, 1968. How many children did Jennifer have? Five. And what are their names? Uh, Petros, Theodore, Christian, Constantine, and Noah. How old was Jennifer in May of 2019? 50. Now, in the time before May 24th, 2019, did you see your daughter often? Yes. Did you speak to her often? Yes. Did you see your grandchildren often? Yes. Now, on May 24th of 2019, did you have plans to see Jennifer? Yes, I did. 
What were those plans? Well, she was going to meet us at my apartment. Is that in the city? In the city, in New York City. And were the children coming as well? Yes, they were. And did the children show up at your apartment that day? Yes, they did. Who brought them? Um, Lauren Almeida. Now, was Jennifer supposed to come to your apartment to meet you and the children there? Yes. Did Jennifer show up at your apartment that day? No. Have you seen your daughter Jennifer since she failed to meet you at your apartment in New York City on May 24th, 2019? No. Have you spoken to her on the phone since that no, day? No, I have not. Have you gotten any emails or text messages or any communication from your daughter since that no. day? I'm sorry, you have to speak up. No. Okay, thank you. And uh, Jennifer's five children, uh, when was the oldest one born? Uh, April 20th, um, 2006. Okay. So By four minutes, because they're twins. So oh. the oldest one is Petros. So there's four minutes apart between so Petros and Theodore. So the oldest by four minutes? Yes. Okay. In 2006? Yes. Between 2006 and 2019, did Jennifer ever miss one of her children's birthdays? Never. And, uh, and the children celebrate their name days, right, under the Greek culture? Yes, they did. Did Jennifer ever miss a name day between 2006 and 2019? Yes. Yeah. Was she always there for them? Pardon? Was Jennifer always there for them? Yes, she was always there. And uh, as of now, uh, 2024, do you have custody of the five children? I do. And since May 24th, uh, 2019, have any of the children ever seen or spoken to their mother? No. I have nothing further, thank you. You're welcome. We're going to play in a little bit as well. So that's a little bit of understanding. That's uh, Gloria Farber for the first time being heard in any public forum and for the first time being seen in any public forum. She has always been described as completely with it. You can see that and you can hear that in the testimony that this is a woman in full command of her own faculties, which I am sure um, is a wonderful thing because otherwise... Jennifer Dulos has one other sister who has not come forward, and the assumption has been that there is a reason why this particular sister would not have been capable of taking care of five children. Jennifer Dulos's own father is gone, and the Fotis Dulos family, I'm sure, is the last place that the Duloses wanted uh that, pardon me, that uh, Jennifer's family, the Farber family, would ever want the children to be in the custody of because they have maintained that Fotis killed Jennifer and Fotis Tulos's family has denied that Fotis had anything to do with it when they came over from Greece during the uh, beginning proceeds of the case against Fotis Tulos. So it, um, I think it is with great relief and gratefulness all around that Gloria Farber is able to assume this enormous responsibility of raising five children. You can hear the heartbreak, right? Can't you hear how heartbreaking it is for a mother to be asked, did your child not show up the last time you saw the child? 
I mean, this mother's grief must be as endless and deep as the ocean. Uh, we're going to come right back, and we're, afterwards you're going to hear how she was grilled on cross-examination. This is the trial of Michelle Traconis currently happening in Stanford Superior Court. We'll be right back. And welcome back to the show. We are going to chat with Bill Gerber, the first selectman of Fairfield at 1030 this morning, and we'll find out what Fairfield is going to do in response to the siding council's moving of these UI monopoles, but not going uh, going along with what Fairfield and Bridgeport and many grassroots supporters wanted, which was an outright denial of this application. 203-333-3942. I'm Lisa Wexler. Good morning. Good morning. We are continuing with our coverage of the trial of Michelle Traconis, who is on trial in Stanford Superior Court for three specific charges. One, the prosecution looking to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Michelle Traconis was guilty of conspiring to murder Jennifer Julos. And two and three have to do with uh, tampering with evidence and hindering the prosecution of the murderer. And uh, that has to do with the fact that almost immediately after Jennifer Dulos disappeared, the focus was on Fotis Dulos, who continued to deny uh, his involvement with the crime up until he actually committed suicide and in his suicide note. So he always maintained his innocence, but he did kill himself in the midst of these proceedings no body has ever been found, and despite tremendous efforts to look for the body, there there have been DNA, um, there have been some blood-soaked garments that were found disposed of by Fotis Dulos with Michelle Traconis in the front seat of the car as he was dumping some refuse bags along Albany Avenue in Hartford immediately after the disappearance. But the jury will have to decide whether the circumstances, the totality of the evidence point to a, a belief that Michelle Traconis herself is guilty beyond a reasonable doubt of these charges. Yesterday, the prosecution rested and rested with its last testimony after putting forth many different police officers, videotaped, three different videotaped testimonies of interviews with Michelle Traconis herself, DNA experts and the like. The last bit of evidence that the prosecution presented was Gloria Farber, who was the mom of Jennifer Dulos, who has been tasked with taking care of her grandchildren, all five of them, these past years. And we played a little bit, we just played a little bit before, of the very, very brief testimony that the prosecutor asked uh, asked of Gloria Farber. Now we're going to play you the cross-examination, the defense. Um. Jennifer's plan to come to New York by herself or with the children? By herself, because she dropped the children off at the New Canaan Country Day School. And the children uh, did come with Lauren to New York that day to, yes. to your apartment? Yes. Were they there at about 12 or 1 in the afternoon? I'd say about 12 or 1, yes. Did you um, reach out by telephone to... Uh, Jennifer, the day before she came to New York. Objection. Ground. Outside the scope, Your Honor. It is outside of the scope. Well, it's a preliminary to the plans of her coming to New York, Your Honor. Well, uh, the objection is sustained, but you can continue with the line of questioning. Did you make plans with Jennifer to um, have her come to New York the next day? Did she share that with you? Yes, she did. Did she mention she was first going to a doctor's appointment that morning? Objection, Your Honor. 
Well, the court allowed the question concerning plans, and so this is a follow-up on plans overruled. Do you remember the question, ma'am? Did she have plans to visit a doctor? Before she came to your apartment? Yes. Do you remember if it was a Dr. Geronimus that she was going to see that Yes. Morning? And did you, um, as part of your making plans with her, did you try to call her the day before to confirm those plans in the afternoon? Objection, Your Honor. Well, now the line of questioning goes from what was the plan to did you try to confirm the plan? And so the court is going to sustain the objection. Did you speak at all to Jennifer that morning of the 24th? No. Did you call, did you call her on her cell phone? No. Objection, Your Honor. Well, the answer to the question was, did you speak to Jennifer that morning? The answer was no. And the court understands the second question to be, did you attempt to contact her that morning? You may ask the question again, John. Right. Did you attempt to, to contact her that morning? No. Did you have her phone number at the time? Of course. Do you recall what that number is today? Objection, Your Honor. Sustained. I have no further questions. I have nothing further. Thank you. Okay. Ms. Barber, you may step down. Thank you. I'm not sure what Mr. Schoenhorn was trying to get at. Maybe he would have been trying to get at whether or not Ms. Farber has a recall of a telephone number. Uh, I have a feeling she does because she's old school and probably doesn't have every phone buried, a number buried in her iPhone. But so many people do nowadays, it's not a fair question to test someone's memory because so many people have chosen to forget information that they no longer need because they can retrieve it in an instant or their device can, that really what would it prove if she couldn't remember the phone number? Anyway, that's all he asked her. Not too much. She sounded sharp as a tack to me. I don't know about you. Pretty sharp lady. She remembered the question that she was immediately asked prior. I'm not sure I would have. 203-333-9422. In any event, now it's the defense's turn. But before the defense put on its defense, the John Schoenhorn, who represents Michelle Traconis, made a spirited argument asking for Judge Randolph to acquit, to summarily acquit uh, Michelle Traconis in the middle of the trial on the ground that the defense believes that the prosecution has improved its case. Uh, the, defense, uh, the judge declined to do that. So the defense moves on. And, uh, and we will see what happens. Um, and in the meantime, there'll be a question about whether or not the contempt of court motion will actually be heard after the defense closes because Michelle Traconis has been accused of placing her laptop screen with a very, very big font so that people behind her shoulder could read it and that what was on it was apparently secret confidential information regarding the divorce between Jennifer Dulos and Fotis Dulos. In any event, uh, we, we're going to see what the defense has to say. He, they are apparently putting on two expert witnesses, 
We don't know whether or not Michelle Traconis will go on the stand. Yesterday, I told you that Kent Mawinney, who is a co-defendant in the case, but will be having his own trial as a co-conspirator for murder. Uh, He is a lawyer. And he is accused of being Fotis's good pal and conspiring with Fotis to murder Jennifer Dulos. He decided not to testify. And Judge Randolph had assumed that that was because he had taken the fifth. In other words, he had availed himself of our Fifth Amendment right not to incriminate ourselves in a court of law. But his lawyer yesterday issued a statement that that was erroneous, that he had chosen not to take the stand but had not taken the fifth. So, frankly, it's very unclear as to what happened here uh, because it is unclear whether or not the prosecutors asked him to take the stand and then he declined under the grounds that he doesn't have to testify against himself or the prosecutors never asked him to take the stand. It's, it's actually just unclear. 203-333-9422. But that is the latest that we have on this case that we've been following so closely ever since the disappearance of Jennifer Dulos herself back in 2019. It's hard to believe it's five years, right? It's five years. 203-333-9422. Okay, let me give you some other news stories before we chat with Bill Gerber from Fairfield. Uh, there is a, a story in Westport, in case you happen to shop in Westport, or live in Westport, that for the very first time, you're going to be charged to park in Westport. Uh, That's new. It used to be free. Uh, Once again, saying goodbye to an old way of living in my town. Uh, There will be a three-hour limit, so you will not be charged for the first three hours, unlike New Canaan and other places where you're charged to say hello from the first minute. Very unfriendly New Canaan in that way. But um, for many, many years, the downtown merchants resisted any imposition of parking uh, parking fees because they felt that it would be disincentive for shopping. And there used to be a hue and a cry in Westport whenever this subject would just be raised. I mean, I cannot tell you how many countless times people would talk about charging for parking in Westport and it would be a whole situation, then it would go away. Seems to have slipped in pretty quickly. The first selectman's office, Jen Tooker, accompanied by Fody Kiskinas, the police uh, chief, have um, both reported to the press uh, about this. Um, and uh, it looks like they're going to do it in a way that has some kind of police surveillance over our cars to make sure we do not stay past the three hours or else. Uh, and there it is. There will still be some unticketed parking throughout town. Your guess is as good as mine where it's going to be. Uh, but that's what it is. And I, all I have to say to that is I feel like my town is changing every single day. The other day I woke up to see that Dunville's had closed. Dunville's after 40 years, summarily just closed. Didn't tell anybody. No last minute half price hamburgers. Uh, a, an old time joint, a way station for people who actually lived in Westport right off of 95 in a very unprepossessing, unfancy kind of a place, a hamburger joint went there many times just to sit around and have a hamburger. Uh, and, uh, it's gone. It's gone. And we say goodbye to the owners. If you're listening, I'm sorry to have lost you. Uh, I'm sorry. We're going to miss you. Uh, it tells me because it's right in the heart of Saugatuck. I am smelling speculation. It's my this is my own my own speculation. I am smelling that ever since the zoning people in Westport decided to overhaul the zoning 
of the entire district to allow something called the hamlet to come in, that people are probably buying up properties left and right, uh, assuming that there'll be some kind of another boom at some point when everything gets off the ground. And the, and Dunville's is located in that area. But Or it could just be that after 40 years, the people are retiring and they no longer wanted to work that hard anymore because you know how hard it is to work to have a restaurant. It is one of the hardest things there is to do. But anyway, I just feel like different things in my town seem to be slipping away. And there are only so many battles that I can fight at any one time. 203-333-9422. We'll be right back. We'll find out how Fairfield is battling this uh, proposal to dramatically alter their landscape to bring in these enormously high monopoles throughout some beautiful areas of our community of Fairfield. We'll be right back. Where Easton comes first for news and talk. The Lisa Wexler Show on WICC 600 AM and 107.3 FM. And welcome back to the Lisa Wexler Show. Joining us now is Bill Gerber, who is serving his first term as Fairfield's first selectman. And he's entered with a bang because there is an enormously transformational proposition uh, in front of affecting the town. And that has to do with United Illuminating's uh, proposal to install miles and miles of these enormously high. We're talking about as high as 125 feet tall, some of them as low, quote, as 95 feet tall. They're enormous. Just imagine three times the amount that a a freestanding single-family house is, is allowed to be. And that's more than that. They're usually around 30 feet, 35 feet max. And um, anyway, so the siting council had this proposal in front of it, and it made its own compromise, which is rather astonishing to me. It said no to the original proposal, but it said, you know what, you could move it. Bill Gerber, you're here with us now. Were you surprised that in the absence of any engineering documents that the siting council decided that this entire proposal could be moved? We were surprised. Yes, we were all surprised. And how are you, Lisa? It's, it's great to be back on your show, and thanks well, for having thank me. Thank you. Well, it's great <laughs> to have you. But I, I have to tell you, Bill, I was thinking about this. Is the siting council composed of engineers that have the depth of specific knowledge to be able to tell an applicant, go ahead and move it someplace else? Um, I think this was an odd choice of directions for them. I mean, obviously, we, on the one hand, we were happy they didn't rubber stamp the original proposal, which was cutting through many homes and historic, um, you know, buildings in Southport all the way through to bridge, historic homes in Bridgeport. So we were surpri- pleasantly surprised that they didn't ru- rubber stamp that, that, um, that plan. And, um, I, I do credit a lot of a lot of people, including you know the town um, and a lot of the neighborhood associations, uh, stepped up and including a representative from from Bridgeport, um, stepped up and made made our voices heard. And I think they heard it and realized that it was um, that was pretty egregious. But what was strange was then not rejecting that plan, then telling. Um, 
UI to go back and actually come up with an alter- alternate plan, whether it's undergrounding or whether it's north of the uh, of the tracks instead of the south. Because uh, and instead, and they call that the the, the northern route north of the tracks. They, they call the Han Han and Morissette alternative, because there was no real fleshed out plan for that alternative, and they approved it. But now uh, UI is. They say they're going to take six to nine months to actually develop a plan. And they're out there knocking on doors along the route, telling people about this. But I'm not sure what they have to tell them because we don't really know where it's going to go. We don't know how tall the poles are going to be in this alternative. So there's not much to say other than you may be affected. (laughs) And it will affect, um, you know, hopefully the effect of that plan is less than the original plan. But we don't. We just don't know. So um, normally, you would expect all the the newly affected people to have an opportunity to to intervene. Of course. But we're not sure that they're going to have that within the the process. That's crazy. So they approve. So, yeah, it so seems let, strange. Yeah. So I have a question. Do, does the siting council have the legal authority to have gone ahead and said that? Because it would seem to me. What do I know? What do I know? But it would seem to me. Uh, For example, I used to be on planning and zoning and zoning boards of appeals and all these things. And we would get a petition, right, from a builder. And we could tell you to the developer, well, you can do this, yes, or you can do this, no, or you can do this, yes, with some conditions. But we couldn't tell them to move it across the street. Right. And it seems like they're doing so left a huge opening for an appeal, Um and and we you know are, are most likely going to appeal this decision. So um, this could be, you know, we don't really know which direction it's going to go, but I think that's the most likely. Yeah, I would think so. And you're not the only um, entity I'm talking about now. The town of Fairfield, who considers yourself an aggrieved party, I would think that a lot of these grassroots organizations are also going to appeal. That would be my assumption. Yes, and and uh, at this point. Um, I'm, I'm quite certain that Bridgeport is very interested in what this is going to look like. We, we, you know, it's a strange situation appealing something that you're not quite sure what you're appealing other well, than, point, you know, right? you, you, you should have right. an opportunity to know right. <laughs> before. <laughs> and there's a ground for so. appeal in and of itself, right? The broadness of a directive or the, right. gener- or the generality or something like that. That's really, uh, yeah. Okay. And, I- and as part of the process, um, you know, it, it's still a mystery where United Illuminating's um, calculations, uh, where they came from for undergrounding. And it would have been really nice to have required some daylighting of, of how they calculate, how they got their, you know, one plus billion calculation, because that was nowhere near where um, our experts came out. It was a fraction of that. So, And that's something a judge might want to require. I mean, that's something when you get in front of a judge, if they, if they are entitled to get into the merits, and that's a very big if, but if right. they're entitled to get into the merits, that's something a judge may want to require as a way of evaluating, you know, the entire situation. Yeah. Right, right. Because our, you know, we are still, we still believe that it just makes sense to underground the line, the whole line. Yeah, course, and uh, unless... You know, unless they come forward with, you know, calculations that people can can look at and agree with, it's hard you know, to, to believe the numbers that we've seen. By the way, Bill Gerber, I was very impressed. One of the things that I saw you were quoted as 
as you elicited that in a prior hearing, maybe it was in the Siding Council hearing, that when United Illuminating was testifying about these monopoles, that it turns out, it came out, that the reason they want them to be so high and so industriously 22nd, 23rd century is not because they're going to be utilized to help the community that pays for their utilities here in Connecticut, but rather contributes to their profit center otherwise as a company. Is that right? That is right. But um, I may have said that, but <laughs> um, what, what I would say the only credit that I get for that is hiring very good lawyers. Uh, when, we, um, when we took uh, – took uh, office. Uh, when I took office and the administration came in, we hired a phenomenal um, land use attorney and, um, you know, really got up to speed very quickly on the, on this project. And that was part of his filing for on behalf of, of the town. That was uh, David Ball. You should excuse the expression. I found that illuminating. <laughs> <laughs> it was i mean it is uh it is true and you know illuminating is you know they're gonna most of that power is going to be um is for other 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 states you know for new york and other states so you know that 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 was a big part of the case that we made there is no projection um in, in any in, in in the in the near mid, medium or even long term that shows that that connecticut needs the amount of power they'll be able to transmit through those lines so is the siding council allowed to consider that as a way of considering the necessity of an application because they are allowed to they're supposed to consider the necessity of an application they are and um we i mean this was another big area of disappointment you can find um the comments uh from our attorneys uh Kona wolf on the um on the Siting Council, um, the docket number 516 on the Siting Council website, they, um, you know, to the findings of fact uh, that, that the Siting Council posted, um, they, um, our, our attorneys had, you know, extensive commentary and none of those were considered in the final ruling. And we were really disappointed about that. And, and this was a big part of what they, of their comments was that, you know, that, 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 that part of the application just wasn't, you know, it wasn't true. It wasn't for the needs of Connecticut. And they didn't, and the siting council itself did not address that in their decision. Not a single comment was, was not a single edit was made based on that. So I think your attorneys will probably use a lot of that to see if any of that is a ground for appeal or something that another court might look at and, and grab. We'll see. We'll see how the courts look at it. Yeah. yeah, and our hope is to, you know, hopefully to be able to sit down at the table with United Illuminating and work out a plan that, that we can all be happy with because we know we need power um, and we want our lines to be more resilient. And uh, under, undergrounding is the most resilient way to do it. It's just, a, you know, um, whether it's some combination of under and over would depend on costs and we need to believe in the costs. So. Well, you know, yesterday we had on our show uh, – the gentleman who is the director for public um, regulatory affairs, not not public, regulatory affairs. And I asked him point blank uh, about the going door to door to Fairfield, whether they were asking questions or answering questions, what was going on. And he said he really didn't know anything about it, which was also uh, surprising to me. Right. Well, you know, they, um, 
all, all, all of the um, utilities, they kind of have a playbook, and usually they'll go door to door and ha- or hand out you know materials and or, or send a card by by mail, and usually they're kind of broad um, and um, don't elicit the kind of you know. Um, they don't elicit the response that uh, later they would get when people truly understand what's going to happen. I think that's what happened in Ah. Southport where people, um, I'm sure you've heard the stories. I probably talked about it. Someone saw someone marking trees for, uh, to be cut down in their backyard. And that was the first time they knew of this project. And you, I said, well, we notified you. And well, you know, and I said this to United Illuminating, you know, if you notify someone they don't know they've been notified, then you really haven't notified them, even if you've, you know, even if you've sent them the postcard, um, you know, if it looks like junk mail, that's not really, I don't think that's the spirit of what um, what they should be doing. And people should really, truly be notified in a way that um, would allow them to to understand and respond. Well, you know, obviously you're not a lawyer, Bill Gerber. That's so obvious in the way you answer that question, because you answer that question like a human. Uh, because <laughs> lawyers, lawyers have two categories of notice as a matter of the way we talk about notice. We talk about notice in terms of legal notice, which means somebody is deemed to have been notified. And then we actually have a term called actual notice, which is the term for when people actually are notified. They really did get the notice. And we as lawyers have two different terms for this because that's what we do. So clearly you're not a lawyer and I can appreciate that. And I, I am not, I, right. but, but as a human, I can tell you that, that, um, when, when they said, Oh, we posted something on a pole at the train station or on a bullet board at the train station. I, I had to laugh because, you know, you're talking about people at six in the morning going right. to work. Like who, who's looking at the, 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 the post, you know, on, on the wall. Not so. to mention the fact that it probably doesn't have to be in plain language. It can probably be in very legal language, which, you know, most people will blur their eyes over before they could possibly understand it. We don't so I, I really do think yeah. I'm sorry. Lisa, sorry. No. I, I really do think that this aspect of the way things, you know, the, of the, the way these regulations work really should be should be addressed. I mean, you know, people deserve to truly know. And if that requires, you know, certified mail or FedEx or to to every person along the route, so be it. But they, you know, everyone deserves the right to understand how their property is going to be affected. Yeah, I know, I know. Two zero three 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 nine four two two. We're chatting with Bill Gerber. So, Bill, all right. So that's really very big news in Fairfield, and I guess you've got thirty days to appeal, and we'll all be following that very closely. Uh, what else is going on in Fairfield? What any other news? Any any news regarding? Uh, meetings with Fairfield University to try and make sure there aren't any more crazy beer keg parties on the beach. What's going on in Fairfield? Well, we have had more meetings with Fairfield University. And, you know, I think the spirit of, of you know, of, of collaboration feels like it's it's increasing. And um, we will see this. The proof is in the pudding. <laughs> And, um, you know, there have been I think we're concentrating more on ideas to to fix this now as opposed to pointing fingers. That's a move in the right direction. So I'm I'm somewhat optimistic. But again, you know, um, we'll see how um, the next party shapes up and is cleaned up. (laughs) 
So that that's a big part of it as well. And that's the most solvable part of this is that if, you know, the university would commit to um, having cleanup crews on the beach that night, um, that would go a long way for at least for the people who come down the next day and the, 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 the parents and the, you know, just beach lovers who have to go out and into the sound to pick up tr- trash because the, the students left it there. That that's really unpalatable. So, and terrible for the environment. That's good. We've got a caller, Carol from Stratford, who I think has a question or a comment for you. Carol, hello. Welcome. You're on the air with Bill Gerber, who's the first selectman of Fairfield. Hello. Hi, Lisa. <clears throat> Everybody's talking about Stratford, I mean, about Fairfield and Westport and all that. They're also putting those t- towers in here on Leo Lane and um, across from uh, James Farm Road. Are they really? Are they very tall, yes. these huge ones? And so what about your mayor? What about Laura? What's going on there? I don't know. I haven't heard anything about it from her. Has any has I, there been I, any local reporting about this? What's I mean, are they very ugly? What are you thinking about them, Carol? Are you upset? Uh, well, they're putting those round, they pounded those round things into the ground already. Hmm. I don't know what that, what those things are. Bill, do you is know that Eversource? Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, is that ever, that might be Eversource, right? Um, Eversource. Yeah, I mean, we Eversource is going through Fairfield as well, and um, we've we've received a lot of emails from people up in Greenfield Hill and you know um, Congress Street. You know, what are these polls going? And we didn't know anything about it. And um, now that I'm hypersensitive to this, you know, um, we got our attorneys and we looked at the, the history here. It's another example of um, the town was notified, you know, um, a couple of years ago, maybe or last year, and we did. Didn't, you know, had an opportunity to, to, to provide comment, and the, and the town did not provide comment on it. So I think um, residents in every town need to tell their elected officials that when they get notice from a utility that work is going to be done, mm-hmm. they should hand that over to the best darn lawyer they have available, and they should make sure that, number one, um, that what they're doing is reasonable um, and number two is, you know, you would want to follow up and make sure that they're following the agreement. So there are, there are cases where, you know, they may knock down, the utility may knock down a wall or, you know, take out some some trees and they're really responsible for, for replanting. And, you know, you need to make sure they do that. This is a very yeah, hard thing to actually have to do. My neighbor across the street, they, took, they yeah. cut all her trees down yeah, and they put that those boards on the, her property over her grass to make room for the, the, the towers. It's right, so hard for the, for the, to see it. It's so ugly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Bill, uh, thank you, Carol, for the call. Bill, stay with us. We're going to be right back. We've got uh, some people lined up from Fairfield who want to talk with you. 203-333-9422. The Lisa Wexler Show is on your favorite podcast app. Follow and you won't miss a moment. Did you know that many of Connecticut's best accountants, doctors, medical scientists, and teachers started at Eastern Connecticut State University? Eastern is ranked among the top 20 public institutions in the North by U.S. News and World Report. The most competitive in the country, the North Region, includes 11 states and Washington, D.C., from Maryland to the Canadian border and west through Pennsylvania. Eastern focuses on undergraduate education on a beautiful residential campus with 40 majors and 60 minors. Eastern is affordable yet academically challenging. 
Students study math and astronomy and read Aristotle and Shakespeare in class. They benefit from close connections with faculty, state-of-the-art technology, and support of alumni. Then they go off to apply their skills, studying public health in Ghana, interning at ESPN, conducting research in the rainforests of Costa Rica, and presenting their work at national conferences. Reserve your spot for an on-campus tour or take a virtual tour today. Go to easternct.edu for more information. Go to www.easternct.edu for more information. The path to your future starts at Eastern. Working from home? Lisa's on your laptop at WICC600.com. It's the Lisa Wexler Show on WICC600. Welcome back to the show. We're chatting with Bill Gerber for Selectman of Fairfield. A couple of topics today revolve around the UI and the Siding Council decision to turn down their original application, but to say yes to move it, which it is likely that Fairfield and perhaps others will appeal. Mike from Fairfield, you're on the air with your first Selectman. Hello and welcome to the show. Hi, Lisa. Mr. Gerber, how did how did they get away with uh, putting these poles up on open space in Fairfield, up, up on the Cascades? Well, um, it's my understanding that they they frame that as replacement of up, you know upgrading existing um, infrastructure, and but in order to do that, they they do have certain easements where they can get there. I think part of the problem is. The poles, in some instances, are a lot bigger than the old um, structures, whether they were, um, you know, some of them were poles. I think some of them were um, um, the, um, what are they called, you know, like the quaternary structures. And um, and the, the, the town, uh, they did notify the town, as we found out uh, prior to my taking office. And uh, there was a period in which we could have commented and we didn't. So um, that's how they're getting away with it. <laughs> I'm sorry. I mean, sorry to, know, yeah. we, 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 buy, we buy open space to have open space not to be developed. And those towers are hideous. Yeah, and, but I believe, um, can you confirm, there was something there before. It's just that these ones are ugly, right? There were towers there. They were uh, metal structures, but now they are adding. They're not just replacing, they're adding. Along the, along that, um, along the, the route, yeah. correct. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Correct. yeah. yeah. You and know, the sorry, problem Mike, is. Yeah, that's, that's redevelopment. That's redevelopment of open space. Yeah, that's terrible. And, you know, the problem is when these towers sail above the tree line, they are really very jarring and disturbing. They really shouldn't be able to do that. They should not be able to go above the tree line. I remember um, when I went to uh, Puerto Rico. This is a complete non sequitur, but it's something that's stuck in my head. I went to Puerto Rico a few years ago with Bill, and there's a, a resort there. I think it's called the Doral. Anyway, some pretty resort. And the resort was developed by a rich person, and he bought acres and acres and acres of Puerto Rico. And he said in the, in the land development that no building could ever rise as high as the tree line. And the tree lines, there are palm trees. They're not very tall mm. trees. And so everything wow. continues to look beautiful. And I've thought mm. about that a lot, that the tree line is something very real to us in Connecticut. It is. Yeah. It is. Yeah. Anyway, um, but thank you for answering that. 203-333-9422, Bill. I mean, you're going you're gonna, to, I guess you're going to be hearing from a lot of people. These, um, these ugly structures, they, they hurt us. 
They, they, they don't make and us feel very good. We are hypersensitive to it. And, um, you know, um, so I, uh, it's, it's definitely a priority. Um, obviously, we all know that we need power, but I, I think some of us wonder in this day and age, you know, how are we, um, our solution to resiliency isn't undergrounding. It's going higher. That right. it doesn't seem to make sense. sense. No, yeah. it doesn't make yeah. any sense. So hopefully common sense will prevail. One can only hope in the meantime, Bill Gerber, it's February. You've been in the job now just a couple of months. So what have been the, uh, what have been the best aspects of being first selectman of Fairfield? What do you like the most about it? Um, I, I, I can't believe how much I love this job. It's oh. crazy. This is a really, <laughs> really great job. There are a lot of great people working here. Um, I, it's amazing. I didn't really, you know, there's, there's real um, hardworking people that are willing to, I mean, I, I, I understand there's some, you know, there, there's some benefits to, um, to, to working for a town and, you know, maybe um, some job security that you wouldn't get in the private sector. But I, I'm not sure that people truly understand how really good some of these people are at their jobs and that they're not getting paid, you know, nearly as much as they could be getting paid in the private sector. So um, that was really a nice surprise. Every day is like packed with with a really wide variety of, 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 of issues. And you go as the first selectman, you're a select person, you go back and forth between the, the sort of fun, joyous ceremonial stuff and the mm. deep issues. And then mm. at, at times some really ugly issues, but um, it, it, it's so varied that the days go by quickly. Um, okay. Yeah. They yeah. They zip. You know, it's funny you should say that because um, I always knew from the outsider as a lawyer how profoundly I respected the clerks of the probate court system, particularly our own oh, clerks at yeah. that time were uh, Shirley DeLuca and Karen Ussolini, who I loved in private practice. But when I became a judge, my immense respect for them went over the top. And I also see that in town hall in Westport, among all the other people that work in the town clerk's office and tax offices. And it is true that we are very lucky in Connecticut, town by town by town. And as I've gotten to know over the last 10 years, the probate court system, we are so lucky because you're right. If you're just going to look at it on, on pay alone, you might not expect the caliber of smarts and commitment that we have among so many people that work in our communities for our towns and cities and, and our state, our state. It's well, I hope you've had a chance to meet our probate judge because Kate Maxim's wonderful. <laughs> Have you I ever had a met Kate? To meet her, she's one of my buddies. Bill. Oh, we're, okay. We're sighted yeah, in Kate's for each awesome. other all the time. Yeah. Okay. Kate okay. is always. She's every time I have to go on vacation. In fact, I'm going on vacation for two weeks to be with my new grandbaby, and Kate is my first up. She's going to be okay. doing um, hearings at the hospital in Westport for me. She's wow. the best. Are you yeah, kidding? she's awesome. Yeah, she's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, her staff is awesome and, too. They're all in your- And what I love about the pro, like, so she worked, you know, for for a Republican for for years. He passed away, and yeah, well, I'm sure you know the story. Yeah, and um, so this that that pro, you know, the probate, you know, office is just non political, uh, or at least it has Zippo. been here. Zippo, yeah. Yeah. Zippo, no politics. Yeah. We have yeah. to run with a party, but it's a very small P. Very right. small right. P. We have to we have to pick a side. We have to pick a team. We have to run. But there's no place for politics in probate court. Zero. And anybody I would who like thinks that so to be for, be 
That should be the way the whole town works, right? Uh, good luck to you. No. I don't know about that. Good luck to you. I don't know. But we don't have to take positions on policies, and we certainly right. don't have to side up against, you know what I mean, or for or against anything that would have any political connotations. Zero. Zippo. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Well, anyway, so you love it. So you love it. Is there I, any downside I love so it. far? Any downside um, so far? You know, I... I wasn't really prepared for um, the stuff that requires a lot of Teflon. You know, um, you know, there. I, I, I guess I, I should have been, but you know, I was on the RTM for for a long time and didn't really see myself the, the target of just you know people posting on Nextdoor and mm. saying things like that. And um, and I was a little taken aback by it, but I've really I've come to realize it doesn't really bother me because it's so silly. <laughs> uh, I guess, I guess there are, um, you know, there are, there probably would be a tipping point, you know, cer- certainly I'm open to criticism. So, uh, but, but some of the criticism that, that you get isn't, isn't, you know, sort of genuine. It's just people being mean. And, and that's yeah. something you got to get used to, but you sort of have to figure out where to filter out the, the, the criticism that comes in that actually is, is genuine. And because you can't just ignore, um, the criticism, sometimes, um, people are actually angry and they may appear to be mean. And then when you talk to them, you figure out, wait, they have a legitimate Right, and then still open-minded to listening, Bill. It's a good thing. Yeah, yeah. Bill Gerber, first selectman of Fairfield, on the show with us today. We'll put it out on podcast for you in case you missed some of it. Thank you, Bill. Thanks for coming back on. We'll have you on again soon. Thanks, Lisa. Take care. Pleasure. You're listening to the Lisa Wexer Show at 11:30. We're going to have the leader of the Bridgeport Animal Rescue on to talk about what's happening there. Stay tuned. Attorney, advocate, author, public speaker. The Lisa Wexler Show, WICC 600 AM and 1073 FM. Flip that switch and turn on your brain. Here is Lisa Wexler. Hola, welcome back to the show. And it's still cold out and the snow is still here. And in a way, that's comforting. I meant to tell you that on Monday morning, I looked out and the daffodils were halfway up in my backyard. I don't know. Are you the only person experiencing that? I mean, am I the only person experiencing that, that the daffodils came halfway up? It's not going to be good for them. They're not supposed to come up until April. I don't know what's going to happen here. They came up before the crocuses. 203-333-9422. It's positively weird. Uh, Anyway, but it did get cold. It has stayed cold. And then the other thing I wanted to tell you was I looked up yesterday, and there were hundreds of birds in about three trees. I counted hundreds. I mean, I stopped counting at about 120. Hundreds and hundreds of birds, and I could tell by multiplying. And it was pretty astonishing. And I closed my eyes, and I created a childhood memory. I went back to a childhood memory. I grew up on the south shore of Long Island in a little town called Woodmere, part of the five towns. And we used to see giant flocks of birds all the time. And it has been decades since I've seen giant flocks of birds. Nowadays, you see a few, a little bit, but you can barely find birds in formation. Uh, so it, was, it made me feel good to see that at this particular place, in these trees, and no, I could not tell what kind of bird they were. They were black, and they were high, high, high up in very high trees, looked like maybe oak trees with no leaves on them. And 
they were making a lot of noise and they were clearly together and they clearly had stayed for the winter. They weren't migrating. I don't know what kind of bird they were, but it made me feel good and it, and it, it made me wistful because I know it's not quite a silent spring. We haven't quite yet gotten to Rachel Carson's premonition of a future without birds entirely. But it's close to a silent spring compared to the way it used to be with billions and billions of birds. And so keep keeping your lights out. We haven't spoken about that in a while. But keeping your lights out at night when you don't really need your lights on is a way to help our creatures navigate. They evade prey at night. The ground creatures, they get to where they need to go. And the birds are on their way to and from at night much more than during the day. So to the extent that you and I can be cognizant of this, if you are someone of influence in your community, if you're on a planning and zoning board, a zoning board, a conservation board, any kind of a thing where you're rewriting regs or thinking about regs or have an impact on how commercial structures are lit up at night, then please try and have your community not as lit at night only as, as lit as it really needs to be. There are things called motion detectors nowadays. There are so many things that we can do to help our other living creatures. I'm urging you to please do that and be aware of it. 203-333-9422. Okay, so I wanted to give you a bunch of other news stories that really sort of picked my brain today. One of them is about Yukon. Uh, and these are, these are really astonishing statistics, and I wanted you to know about this. For the very first time, Yukon up in stores has over 50,000 applications for next year, which is much more than it ever had before. In other words, it isn't more by a little, it's more by a lot. The applications have skyrocketed. There are 56,000. More than 56,700 aspiring Huskies have already applied for spots in the fall's entering class. This is the first time Yukon has surpassed 50,000 altogether, and it hasn't stopped growing yet. Last year was only 48,000. In fact, first-year student applications have increased 18% in just the past two years, but we also have campuses in Stamford, Avery Point, Waterbury, Hartford, and those have increased over 21%. Wall Street Journal ranked UConn as number nine among the nation's public colleges and universities. So that's a big deal. We made the top 10. And here's something that I didn't know about. UConn was recognized among the nation's top producers of Fulbright U.S. Student Program Award recipients for the first time. Also, our ranking is very high in U.S. News and World Report. And we have a president, Radenka Marek. We need to get her on the show, Melissa. We need to do that. Uh, And she's a lovely woman. I've met her. And she says, when I speak with other university presidents, many say that the trends of demography, which have fewer students applying altogether, have made it more difficult for their institutions to attract large applicant pools. But we are proud that UConn's reputation for academic excellence continues to draw so many talented students. And this is all happening at the same time that UConn is begging for more money in the Hartford legislature. They say they need millions more just to balance their budget. But it, I, I happen to say that for me, it's very heartening good news to see that uh, UConn is ranking so high and it continues to rank high. 203-333-9422. They're asking for $47 million more to avoid cuts. And in the meantime, in other education stories, and this is a big one, 
Yale has followed MIT and Dartmouth, requiring standardized test scores again for admissions. There has been a very significant dance that, and this is all about, just so you know, big picture, 40,000 feet, what's the big idea? The big idea is that colleges have struggled for decades, for decades, to be able to balance their incoming classes with enough kids that they feel are from underprivileged backgrounds. Uh, You can call them BIPOC, black and indigenous peoples of color. You can call them urban, whatever kind of thing you want to say. They are, they have been trying for a long time to diversify their classes by bringing in kids that they feel are not kids that have grown up in sophisticated elite backgrounds in which they have been given all the advantages that have led them to be able to be a successful applicant to their school. And so they are trying to redress past discrimination. And this is a story that has, you know, given rise to affirmative action and Supreme Court decisions with respect to affirmative action. But the people in the colleges are still trying very, very hard. They say they are anyway, to have more underrepresented people be able to have these golden tickets. And one of the things that they did was they erased standardized exams. They said, you know what? We don't think exams are that important. In fact, we think the opposite. Not only are they not important, but they discriminate against uh, underprivileged kids because it's only the privileged kids who do well on the exams because only the privileged kids have parents that are willing to pay for prep courses. And so they threw the baby out with the bathwater and they said, we don't care about standardized exams at all. And 80% of colleges now nationwide don't require them at all. They are strictly optional, 80% of all colleges, not just the elites. You don't need the SAT. You don't need the ACT. You don't need anything. We all know there's huge grade inflation. So what does an A tell you? What does an A really tell you today? It tells you nothing. It tells you sometimes the kids, kids went to class and handed in their homework on time. I mean, really, an A used to mean something. Uh, a B used to mean something. A C used to mean average. Those days are long gone, long, long gone. Uh, and we know this to be true. There was a story that came out out of Yale that something like 90, 90 plus percent of incoming Yale students have a 4.0 at Yale. So what does that mean? It means that A is the curve. It's ridiculous. So the colleges have been struggling with, well, how if they can't look at grades and they don't accept standardized tests, how are they going to know who the smart kids are? By recommendations? By extracurricular activities? I mean, a lot of people say nice things. If you have something nice to say, you don't say anything at all. So they're never going to get an unkind recommendation. They're never going to get somebody writing a recommendation for a kid that allows them to read between the lines that this kid isn't so great. So the admissions have been struggling with, uh, what are we going to do here? So it turns out that Dartmouth, Dartmouth University, one of the Ivy Leagues, did a study. And the conclusion of their study was a surprise. The conclusion of their study was, you know what? Standardized tests really do help us determine whether or not kids should go to our school. They really do determine whether or not kids are brighter than other kids are more able to sustain the four years of supposedly rigorous academic classes. They tell us who the bright kids are. We want them back. And not only do we want them back, but we think it will help us get more underprivileged kids into our classrooms. Why? Because what they determined based on their scientific study was that 
if a kid got 1,200, but everybody else in their school got 900, that was still the bright kid. 1,200 may still not be the average curve for the Ivy League. It might be 1,400 because the suburban school districts, which are generally speaking more privileged kids, they up their averages and they can get 1,400s. So a 1,200 from a suburban school district doesn't mean that much, but from an urban school district may mean a lot. And so they reinstituted standardized tests, and Yale is just following suit. And it made the front page of the Times today. Yale University will require standardized test scores for admission for students applying to enter in the fall of 2025, becoming the second Ivy League university to abandon test-optional policies that had been widely embraced during COVID. They said in an announcement yesterday, Yale, that the shift to test-optional policies might have unwittingly harmed students from lower-income families whose test scores could have helped their chances. They're still going to be test-flexible for a year or two, and then they're going to go to test-mandatory. I think it's fascinating. And it's all about, at at the undercore of this, this is all about trying to find and trying to give a break to the kids among the urban kids, among the black and indigenous people of color group that society feels are entitled to be given that chance to walk up the ladder towards having this golden ticket toward a life of privilege and opportunity and wealth. Because the thinking is that that is exactly what that degree allows you to do. I'm Lisa Wexler. We'll be right back. And welcome back to the Lisa Wexler Show. 203-333-9422 is our number. You can call me at 203-333-9422. All right, let me give you, let's see, what else do I want to give you an update on? Uh, I wish I could tell you that the war in Israel, between Israel and Hamas, is over. It is not, but there are hints that there may be a hostage deal with Benny Gantz, who's a member of the War Cabinet, saying preliminary signs of progress have emerged on a deal to pause fighting in Gaza in exchange for the release of Israeli hostages. Uh, there are reports of all kinds of, um, well, all kinds of, of, of battles and, and fights and injuries uh, on both sides of the equation as Israel continues to try and uh, defeat Hamas and to defeat Hamas strongholds and try and, and try and beat them sufficiently enough militarily so that when this war is over, Israel will not continue to be bombarded with thousands of rockets a day that go into the south of Israel and not have to continue to rely on its Iron Dome and not have to worry that there are going to be these marauders that invade and massacre their children and their women and their men. 203-333-9422. But in the meantime, the world sentiment is gathering against Israel, feeling that Israel is too harsh in its war, in its effort to defend itself and beat its enemy. Um, and uh, in the in the European Union and in other places, they are gathering to uh, try and castigate Israel, punish Israel, chastise Israel. Um, and so, the longer the war continues, uh, the more difficult it is for Israel in, on a world stage. With yesterday, only a Hungarian dictator 
Victor Orban as the sole person who refused to go along with yet another motion to condemn Israel. And here in our own neighborhoods, in Hamden, in Bridgeport, in other places, uh, city councils are meeting to try and insist that Israel uh, engage in a ceasefire in the war on Gaza, uh, which um, is causing an awful lot of consternation in the Jewish community. And in fact, um, we're going to have Karen Savell speak with us uh, at 11.30 today. And I believe it's today that she is joining us. And she is, um, hold on, let me find it. Hold on. Yes, Karen Savell is joining us at 11.30 today. And she is actually the leader of the Federation. And she has been really on ground zero in a lot of these uh, council meetings. And she's going to report on what she has seen within our communities. 203-333-9422 is our number. Okay, what else do I want to tell you about? There's a race going on for State Senate District 36, Ryan Fazio's race, in which he uh, has won but barely in very, very close contests. He's going to be faced either by Trevor Crow or Nick Simmons. There may or may not be a primary, or we'll have to see who the Democrats choose there. Nick Simmons is the brother of Caroline Simmons. He is the former Deputy Chief of Staff to Governor Lamont. And he has announced his candidacy for State Senate District 36. That promises to be a very rough race that a lot of people will look to. Ryan Fazio, having made a name for himself as a Republican, you know, statewide, but leading by the narrowest of margins in terms of his own district. So we'll see whether or not he can hold on to his seat. 203-333-9422. And other updates, one of the, uh, one of the issues that many of our superintendents in suburban school districts here in Fairfield County have been upset about was this mandate, this insistence that our reading curriculum be overhauled in our public schools and that we exceed to state curriculum guidelines. And with respect to exceeding to those state uh, curriculum guidelines, it looks like that right to read legislation is something that our, some of our legislators want to look at, tweak a little bit. But it looks like that that is unlikely to happen in this session, in case you've been looking at that. Okay, we're going to go to Bridgeport Animal Control right now. Who do we have with us on? Because um, there was a little bit of different communication with respect to whether or not you're going to be able to call in. So Hi. Who do I, who, who's on the air with us? Is it Jennifer? Jennifer Miranda? It is Jennifer. Yes, hello. Um, I'm the chief ACO for the city of Bridgeport, and I'm happy to talk to you today. Thank you, Jennifer. I'm so glad that you called in. So one of our stories, which we hadn't gotten to report yet, Jennifer, was actually coming out of your office that apparently you've been inundated with animals and you really need help from the community. What, what's going on at Bridgeport Animal Shelter right now? So to say that it's just going on here would really not be addressing the full scope of kind of what's going on in Connecticut, where we're seeing a real surge of animals that have been displaced from their homes and entering this uh, arena of needing to be rehomed, whether it's through a municipal shelter like uh, ourselves here at Bridgeport or any of your municipal shelters across the towns and cities of Connecticut or through rescue groups. And um, it's been building up for a little while. Um, it's become much, much more noticeable in the past year or so. And right now we're on track to double our intake um, based on what last year's was compared to this year. So um, we're really looking to get ahead of the issue and really get the uh, message out there that we need adopters and supporters. 
So, okay. And can you tell us specifically what kind of animals are you seeing? What kind of age ranges? What kind of breeds or mixture of breeds? Who's there? So that's the thing. Um, in the past, I would joke that our demographic here was mostly my titties, you know, the pit bulls, and what I would joke are apartment dogs, which are your Yorkies and Chihuahuas and Maltese and et cetera. But that's kind of out the window, and that's something we're kind of seeing across the state as well is that we're seeing more purebred dogs come into shelters. We're seeing older dogs come into shelters. Um, we're certainly seeing small dogs and our bully breeds as well. Um, but we are definitely not just seeing an increase in volume, but an increase in, in variety. So um, if you were, you know, a buyer uh, looking for a house, it would be your buyer's market. Um, we are definitely seeing uh, a lot of animals in shelters that maybe wouldn't be available to get through rescue typically. Um, so it's definitely the time to come adopt because, you know, not only are these animals here and waiting, but there's so much more of them than there used to be. Let me ask you this. Tell us the truth. Tell us the truth. How long do you keep these otherwise healthy animals before euthanizing them? So what's really great about what we do here in Bridgeport is we do not euthanize for space or time. Um, we are very adamant that if an animal is happy, healthy, and safe to adopt out, that they get as long as they need. So you may have, if you've um, followed us or if any of the listeners have followed us, um, we will go above and beyond if we end up having a long timer that needs to be spotlighted. Uh, last year we were doing Whitney Wednesdays um, because we had a dog Whitney that was just this oh my gosh, she was just this bundle of love and she just was getting overlooked. Well, then we step it up for that dog. Um, and that's what we want to continue to do. And we want to be able to, um, you know, dedicate that time and the resources to the pets because we don't have timelines. Um, it is about finding them great homes. Um, and the way we're able to do that is through great adopters, obviously, but also through the support of local rescue groups that choose to pull from local municipal shelters that dedicate their resources to helping Connecticut dogs. Um, because when we have a dog that maybe doesn't do as well in the shelter environment that would do incredible in a foster home, that's a great outcome for that dog. So not only are we looking to get these animals adopted, um, but we're just looking for those positive outcomes, even if it takes an extra step before the forever home. Those connections and those outcomes oh, are great. So you're willing. Okay, that's a really important message. I just want to put a, a fine point on it. What you're saying is if you're listening right now and you're somebody who is comfortable with, familiar with fostering an animal where you know that you can't make that permanent commitment or attachment, but you don't want to have that animal be living in your shelter, that you could call Bridgeport Animal Shelter and explain and talk about your experience and your situation. And perhaps the animal shelter will allow you to have that animal with you so that that animal's not in a shelter, but not commit you towards adopting. Is that what you're saying? So we do that through partner rescue groups, right? So we don't foster out directly, okay. um, but we have many rescue partners that are looking for fosters. We have a great senior rescue group that operates in Fairfield County that um, they they call us first, you know, when they have openings. And when they have an open foster home and we have something that would go great with what they do, which, I, like I said, is the seniors, um, they're here and they're dedicated to helping, you know, the Bridgeport and Fairfield County dogs. Well, they can do more when they get more foster homes, right? 
So if you want to get involved, you don't have to, you know, be an adopter right off the bat. Heck, you don't even have to be a foster family. Sometimes sharing the pets online or reaching out to a connection that you have and saying, hey, could we do a cool promo for my local municipal shelter? Because sometimes we do get overlooked, you know, and um, everybody. Where is your shelter, Jennifer? Where is Mm -hmm. the Bridgeport Animal Shelter? Literally, where are you? Literally, where are we? We are at 236 Evergreen Street in Bridgeport. It's off of North Ave. Um, and uh, we are open uh, six days a week. So we are open for visits from about 11 a.m. to uh, uh, 3.30 in the afternoon for walkthroughs. And then we do our adoption visits by appointment where we schedule you out in one of our play areas so you can really get to know the animal you're looking to adopt and see if the chemistry is there before and you And what about forever. your screening? Because, I, I mean, I know that some... It's a difficult thing. I mean, some people, I, let me put it this way. Do you screen basically to make sure that an animal is given to a home that is not going to abuse the animal? Do you do any screening? Of course. You know, so, so as um, animal control, we are also on that law enforcement aspect and we do make animal cruelty arrests and we would never want to put one of our, uh, pets that we've gotten to know and we love and we're rooting for into a bad situation. So we do have an adoption application and an adoption process. Um, We do require meet and greets um, for uh, any children in the home, any dogs currently home with other dogs, any adults in the home. Uh, We require proof of home ownership or a notarized letter from the landlord stating that the pets can be on the property. Mm, That's a big barrier. That's a big thing. Of course it is. is. That's that's very often why they have to give up the pet to begin with. Absolutely. So, I mean, it's an uphill battle when we look at um, why are the pets ending up in the shelters? I can't, um, you know, create affordable pet-friendly housing for my position here. We can absolutely, as a city, you know, we offer um, to our residents a pet food pantry. So if somebody um, is not experiencing an issue with housing, but maybe an economic hardship um, for a short while, we can keep loved dogs in homes because that prevents them from needing a new home and being at the shelter in the first place, you know, keeping dogs um, where they're at when people do experience a hard time is so important. Um, But from our perspective, I can't, you know, make insurance companies lower rates for certain breeds of dogs. I can't, um, you know, convince landlords to allow dogs over 25 pounds. Um, But the public could, you know, the public opinion is strong and pets are members of the family. I don't think any housing development should be allowed to be built that doesn't allow at least one pet per owner, at least one, because I think that um, it has been proven again and again and again the beneficial aspects of having a pet. And I think it's against public policy to not allow people to deprive people of the companionship of a pet. I think it's appalling. Um, Well, you know, I I would agree, definitely. I think that what... It gets really frustrating is, you know, up here, especially this kind of culture we have around our pets is that they, they're, you know, we call them pets, you know, but they're really members of our family, right? They are. Um, And if you grew up with pets and now you're looking for a housing situation that allows no pets, it really does feel like something is is missing um, from your life. And um, there are so many people that would be excellent 
pet owners and have an absolute great perspective on what it takes to responsibly own a pet, whether that's a dog, cat, exotic, you know, a bird or a snake or anything, um, they would be excellent and they are not able to help these pets that are in our shelter systems because of like those types of barriers with housing. So Jennifer, um, before I let you go, I have have a question for you. If -hmm. somebody adopts from Bridgeport Animal Rescue, have you already taken care of whether or not they've been neutered or spayed, or is that an extra expense for the pet owner? So Bridgeport Animal Control being municipal, we are able to use the animal population uh, control voucher, um, which means that all of our dogs are spayed or neutered, their first two vaccines, rabies and distemper, and microchipped for an adoption fee of $80, and we do that before they leave the facility. Um, Cats, uh, same thing, except it's $60. So we really believe in um, spay-neuter, so we're not contributing to the population issues that we're seeing, because like I said, it's a multifaceted issue how how pets are ending up in shelters, and some of that is, you know, breeding that can't be regulated. Well, we're not going to contribute to that by um, putting pets that are not spayed or neutered out there. So we believe that is a huge part of responsible adoptions. Um, so that's something that we, before they even leave our facility, that is completed and it's completed at a cost that uh, allows the adopter to, you know, spend that money on other startup things. Maybe they want to get, you know, a nice crate and fully outfitted and get everything going. If you're not spending $900 up front right when you adopt, you can save that money and get the pet on an insurance plan and be a responsible pet owner and maybe even splurge on something nice for them as a coming home present. Um, so, you know, we don't think the cost is a barrier to adoption uh, through us. And we really believe in, in getting these animals out with at least that basic um, package to start them off where they are spayed or neutered. They have their first two core vaccines and they are microchipped. Okay. So Jennifer Miranda, so Bridgeport Animal Control specifically, I understand generally our animal shelters are overflowing in an unexpected way, but you're saying specifically at 236 Evergreen Street near the North Avenue from 11 mm-hmm. to 3.30 p.m., 11.30 to 3.30 p.m., six days a week, you can go and take a look and you may find your next best friend. So yeah, thank you yeah. very much, uh, We also post all of our pets online. So if you can't swing down here, uh, oh, follow us on nice. Facebook. We do... Um, photo shoots for them. We have them on live video. We really want to connect these pets with their forever families. Thank you so much. Thanks for coming on. You're welcome anytime. We're going to be right right. back. Thank you. We're going to be right back with Karen Savell. She is uh, the leader of Federation of Jewish Philanthropies in our region. And we're going to hear a little bit about what's going on on the ground with some of these resolutions in various uh, towns and cities with respect to the war in the Middle East. Stay tuned for more of the Lisa Wexler Show coming right up. You're listening to the Lisa Wexler Show on on WICC 600 AM and 107.3 FM. And keep listening to Lisa's podcast. Subscribe today. And we have been hearing about and reading about a lot of conversation and some argument and shouting going on in Bridgeport and Hamden and other places with respect to these resolutions that are popping up for Israel to uh, cease its war against Hamas, which was in response and self-defense to an atrocity that was committed on its country, in its country, October 7th. 
And joining us now, rejoining us is Karen Savell, who's the leader of the Federation of Jewish Philanthropy. She has been back and forth in missions to Israel since October 7th. She's very much on the ground here. She personally attends a lot of these hearings and meetings, and I asked her to come on the show to give us an update on what's going on. Karen Savell, welcome back to the Lisa Wexler Show today. Hi. Hi, Lisa. It's nice to be back. Well, thank you. So we were talking. I wish we were talking about something else, but it's nice to be back. I know what you mean. I, but I think that because you've been attending these meetings first person, and I haven't, that you can give us an idea what what's going on and where is it going on and and what's it about. Just start with us. What's happening? Well, we have the the um, the horrible label of being the first Connecticut city to have passed. One of, one of these ceasefire resolutions, Bridgeport was, and really what it is, is it's, um, it's a ceasefire um, that puts the onus of the war on Israel and uh, equates the work of with Israel defending itself as a country. It's a heinous resolution. It is hate-filled, and it is being challenged all across the United States. Some, some of the places, some of the cities are passing it. Some of the cities are not passing it. Some of the mayors uh, don't, want, don't want to do it. Most of the city councils don't have the stomach for this sort of thing. And, and of course, the bottom line is that it's not the business of the city council to be getting involved in international affairs. Well, that is so obviously self-evident that one would think it needs to be said again and again, which creates for me the question, Karen Savell, why are they getting involved in international affairs? Where's this coming from? You know, it's a coordinated effort, and it's a, it's, a, it's a nasty coordinated effort across the country. They're putting in young city council members, first-timers, and this is the first bill that they are putting forth, is this resolution for a ceasefire. This is a coordinated attempt, and after they get enough cities together, then they can go up to the state house and say, look, look at all the cities in Connecticut. You've been reading Israel wrong. They're the bad guys. And then the governor takes a look and says, maybe I am reading this wrong. Look at all these cities that have passed this. And, and then he goes up to the White House and said, what are you hearing? So it's a plan to sort of shift public opinion um, because the, the resolution itself is filled with, I would say, inaccuracies. They're, they're lies filled with those things. And so um, in Bridgeport, uh, the Federation and the Jewish community as a whole was not called in to even take a look at this until one day before it was coming on to be to be um, heard in the city council. And we tried very hard. I tried very hard, you know, from the Federation standpoint, because we represent the 25,000 Jews in Fairfield County. And um, we tried very hard to get this thing removed from the agenda. Um, but they did not have the summit for it, I have to tell you. Um, the um, Islamic the, the Islamic Center down in Bridgeport, you know, came out in full force. They bust people in from Hartford. There was over 300 of them there. I think at the time there were 15 members of the Jewish community there, including two rabbis. Um, people were, uh, frankly, Lisa, people were afraid for their lives. Um, it was a mob scene, and it ended very poorly. Um, and then, but it did give us time after that to regroup and figure out our strategy. And two weeks ago, we appeared, I appeared before the city council and began the battle to have this removed and rescinded. And I had to have a police escort out to my car. Why? I mean, they had to stop the Why? proceedings Why four times. Why, why did you have to have Well, I was the main one of the speakers, and um, they were they were behind me yelling, you know, death to Jews, death to Israel, Zionist. I mean, yelling, yelling, yelling. And they death would, you know, Jews? bang the gavel. They were yeah, well, they were right behind Jews? me. Hard to tell if they were saying death to Jews or death to you. 
hard to tell, but they were behind me, and we were significantly numbered. Um, I had letters from community members who were there that night who said that it was absolutely the scariest night of their lives. And so I was grateful for the Bridgeport um, for the Bridgeport Police Department. I still am. They made sure that I got to my car safely because it was scary. But, you know, then two weeks later, we came back again this past week on February the 20th, and we had had significant conversations with the city council members. I met one-on-one with many of them, and we had a couple of the rabbis from the community wrote to the Islamic Center, and I know that the city council themselves were bombarded with letters just saying that you have to keep decorum in the city council chamber. You cannot let this go on, and people can't be afraid of their lives. And so we went once again and spoke once again. But in the interim of meeting with city council members, we also had the opportunity to meet with a, with a city council member who offered to put in a resolution to rescind the first one. Now, that makes us the first in the country to do that. And it was filed this week and was on the agenda on Monday night. We had about 200 of us there, which was great. I felt very safe that night. And I spoke for the, for, um, for the bill to rescind the initial resolution. But I also added a caveat that we would be willing as a community to sit down with the Muslim community and prepare some type of resolution that simply asked for peace, yeah, that didn't point fingers and didn't lie, but just asked for peace. Right. And that's where we are right now. Well, that sounds, you know, very American, right? Doesn't it? I mean, it sounds like... I think it is American. I mean, the, you know, the United States just vetoed a ceasefire at the U.N. for the third time. Mm-hmm. You know, this is, this is the American values that we hold. And um, we were very disappointed at the city council meeting when the mayor did not take up the resolution. Mm. He ignored it, and they closed session. Um, perhaps we will have a, a different outcome when we meet again on March the 4th because the election for mayor will be over by then. Yeah. And we'll know who the new mayor is or if it's the same mayor. And uh, perhaps he will take it out, you know, take it on then. If he doesn't, then we move on to the next plan. I think the difference is, and I feel strongly about this, is that, you know, as Jews, um, all of us, if not most of us, uh, remember or read or understand what happened during World War II and what, what happened to the Jews. And, and quite frankly, and, and I know this is a stark thing to say, but we're not walking to the boxcars this time. We're no just way. not. No way. And I think that... Not happening. Yes. Not. No, not. I think that they were all, this is the comments I got, they were stunned that the Jewish community and made such a big stink about this. And they're still stunned about it. And when 200 of us walked into the city council, everybody was stunned. But they came from all over the Federation footprint um, to show support. So that's where we are. Um, and we're hoping that they hear it on March the 4th. Who knows? You know, you just, you don't know. I'm not a municipal, you know, election person. So I really don't know where that lies. But hopefully he'll pick up the resolution. And we'll move from there. When you say, you know, know it's interesting. Met... Yeah, go ahead. I'm chatting with Karen Savell, head of Federation of Jewish Philanthropies. Uh, Carmen Lopez, who's been on our show, a very esteemed, admired, I personally admire her a lot, former uh, judge, former Superior Court judge, retired now. She heard she... what happened to her. Yeah, I should have her on the show yeah. and ask her. Uh, apparently, I'm looking at this Connecticut Post uh, report, uh, she sort of dared to speak and was shouted down about this right she was booed off and and she yep 
She was booed off and also said she was afraid for her life. I mean, it was a terrible situation the first time. I had one of the rabbis said he would never come back because he was too afraid. Um, and, uh, we had was there an intimation of violence? I mean, when you say afraid, was there, was there any kind of menacing well, going on or just a lot of shouting? What do you mean by afraid? So if you look at your phone or the TV and you see these marches that, that people are doing where they're, you know, they have the flags and they're yelling and their faces are covered and it's scary, but it's on your phone. Try being in the middle of it. Mm. I mean, that's what it was. That's how they were dressed. They, I mean, I never saw flags waved like that in a council chamber. I never knew that that would be allowed. And frankly, uh, two weeks ago when we appeared, Lisa, they began the meeting with a reading from the Quran. Come on. And I thought, are you, are you kidding me? And then they had another pastor, Pastor Bennett, who is just, I mean, he hates us. There's no other word for it. He just hates us. I mean, he got up there and, and made a hateful opening prayer. And then they started the city council meeting, and I stood up. And I said, excuse me, there are two rabbis here. We'd like a, a blessing of our own. Oh, my goodness. You know, more I, of the blessings I, now. Most of Gee, it feels whiz. weird. So, you know, it was better this past week. It was quiet. Nobody yelled at anybody. Um, when our people spoke, uh, and we had three of us only, and they had seven. And that's another issue for a whole other thing is why they continue to get more speakers than we do. But um, so our crowd, you know, cheered and clapped after we spoke, as did theirs. And there was no heckling and there was no yelling. So I was very grateful for that, you know, um, and everybody got to say what they were going to say. But the mayor, in no way was he going to entertain this resolution before his election. But it's not going away. And we're not going away. That's much more important. We are not going away. And we are excited and looking forward to being able to sit down with the Muslim community. Listen, Lisa, for years, decades, the Federation has been supporting the Muslim community, 100%. whether it's with our dollars. My old, rabbi, may, my old rabbi may rest in peace. So I don't know if you knew Rabbi Israel Stein of Congregation Modef Shalom, a blessed memory. One of his best friends was a local imam. And they were always in our temple. Always. In Bridgeport, right. by the way. Always. You know, we, we run a program called Dignity Grows, which um, fights period poverty. And, and young Muslim women, they do not have the products they need when it's that time of the month. And we would supply them to everyone every month. And so that stopped, by the way. We're not doing that. We can't go into the community. So they, we had, you know, I was talking about it this morning. We had a wonderful working relationship as a community. And when they put forth this ceasefire, what they got was a community war. It was the exact opposite. And frankly, you know, I, I know that they're you know, pushing for a ceasefire in the Middle East. They can't even get a ceasefire in, in Bridgeport. Okay, Karen Isabel, thank you very much for coming on to report this. And uh, we appreciate your perspective and point of view. And thank you for keeping us up to date on all of this. Anytime, Lisa. We're in it. We're in it. And we're not backing down. Okay. Karen Savell from Federation of Jewish Philanthropies on the Lisa Wexler Show. We'll be right back. And welcome back to the show. It was rather troubling, I must say, 203-333-9422, because I think this is the very first time that a Middle East conflict has created an eruption uh, and a division in so many American communities. 
Uh, the last time we had a very big war was back in 1973. I was 13. And admittedly, I was in a cluster of a real Jewish ghetto where I lived. My parents intentionally raised me among the majority of other kids in my public school were Jewish. We, I took Hebrew as a, a language along with Spanish and French in school. And um, so we were very sheltered. My parents wanted us to be sheltered. But it didn't seem to me, and it wasn't the case, that there was such a, an ugly divisiveness with respect to American Middle East policy that there is now 50 years later. Uh, and, of course, the world changes in 50 years in some ways. In some ways, it doesn't. The most resonant comment that I heard from Karen Savelle of Federation of Jewish Philanthropies was that we're not going to be walking into boxcars. And that's the truth. If there's one lesson that came out of six million dead in World War II, it is that lesson, which is that if we go, we're not going quietly. We're going with a lot of noise and fanfare, and we're going down fighting. And that's it. We will not go peacefully into the gas chamber ever again. And that's the way we feel as a Jewish people. And that is the miracle of the state of Israel. And the state of Israel is, is a miracle. It is a miracle in every way. If you've never been, you ought to go. You ought to call up Karen Savell and go because Federation of Jewish Philanthropies leads missions and they lead them among Jewish people and non-Jewish people. You can go with your own church or mosque, wherever you want to go with, but you ought to go see Israel. And maybe when you go, and maybe only when you go, will you be able to separate uh, some of the facts from the propaganda that is being thrown at all of us here in the United States. There's an awful lot of propaganda coming our way. And uh, if you go there yourself, I think you'll be able to separate it quite well. You'll be able to see that on every street sign, they are in Hebrew, Arabic, and occasionally English. Uh, you'll be able to see that, yes, there are Arabic neighborhoods, and yes, there are Jewish neighborhoods. And you'll be able to, if you, if you sort of get into the society at all, you'll be able to see the many Arab professionals that thrive. There are many Arab doctors and nurses and shopkeepers and everything else in a society. And they have a higher standard of living in Israel than they do in most of the other Arab world. That's a fact. And you'll be able to see for yourself. But, but we are in a place right now where rifts are being created uh, in relationships and communities that never used to exist before. There were alliances side by side. I was a member of Congregation Rodef Shalom in Bridgeport for many years, well before I was on the air, because I loved uh, Rabbi Stein, Izzy Stein, Israel Stein, and I loved Cantor Grama. And they were a great duo. Cantor Grama was from the Metropolitan uh, Opera before he became a cantor. And he would sing in that magnificent sanctuary, and I would close my eyes and be in bliss. And Rabbi Stein was all about social justice. Every Saturday on the pew, he was all about mending fences and social justice. And he always had a welcoming smile and a glad hand for everybody of every faith. And there were so many different opportunities for interfaith with Muslim and Christian clergy all the time at Rodef Shalom. And I remember that very distinctly. I haven't been a member for a while. Uh, the rabbi passed away, the cantor passed away, and they have new leadership now. But uh, it hurts me. It hurts my heart, actually, 
to hear what uh, Karen Savell was saying because this war will end, but some of the ill feeling will linger, and we're going to have to take that. We're going to have to take that space and extend our hands and make friends again, and find and find much more that we have in common than anything that we don't in the way that all of us want to live with dignity and humanity and respect for ourselves and our families, because that is the bottom line and tolerance and acceptance of the divergence of our religious beliefs. And that is the most American beauty and the beauty of this country and bringing all of this international conflict here to our city councils where it is completely, in my view, inappropriate. It would be as inappropriate to bring the asking for the ceasefire in Israel as it would be to talk about the civil war in Yemen or what's happening in China with the million Muslims that are being held in concentration camps over there or the multiple Muslim-on-Muslim conflicts in just about every region of the Arab world. It just doesn't belong here. And the reason it is here the reason it is here is, 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 in my opinion, is because it involves Jews and the Jewish people. 203-333-9422. And what that says about the insidiousness and the pervasiveness and the insistence of anti-Semitism, it just says it all to me. Because there are so many other conflicts that could also be argued in town halls everywhere. Why only this one? Why? Why only this one? We don't have American soldiers there. Why? American money fuels and fans conflicts all over the world. Why? 203-333-9422. The answer is self-evident. I'm Lisa Wexler. Tomorrow is Friday, and Friday is always a welcome day. Uh, In the meantime, we have the rest of the day and lots of conversations coming up, including from 2 to 6, our own Paul Paselli with Connecticut Today. Eric Erickson leads us out for two hours of national news that he reports from Georgia with the Eric Erickson Show here on WICC. So keep your dial tuned to WICC, where you get everything local that's important to you. If you missed any part of the show, by all means, find us on our podcasts, which you can access anywhere you access podcasts. And if you would like to receive a free copy of our weekly newsletter, just send me your email at lisa at lisawexler.com. I'll be back behind the mic tomorrow. 
Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Thank you for listening. If you liked what you heard, please share it with your friends. And as always, feel free to contact me at lisa at lisawexler.com.